Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Cameron, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So, yeah, I'll start again. Sorry, sorry, I was no, so keep... late today. I was watching um, Gladys uh, giving us the update on the lockdown, and I was like, "Shit, no, got a bit of the podcast." You're so, watching the soccer. Don't lie. No, I, I did yeah. watch that, but that was at six in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, into extra time. So, it's... so you were having a nap. We understand. <laughs> I wish. No, I took my kids to daycare, and then I was like, oh, "I'm going to relax now." And then I forgot the time, so I really do apologise. The kids allowed back at daycare now. Yeah, daycare's allowed. Huh. But you've got to go one in, one out. It's all very controlled, etc. Just it's hard to it's hard to keep up with it all. Yeah, and what's the situation down in Melbourne, Cameron? I uh, look in Melbourne, we're we're relatively free and and moving again, which is wonderful. Um, given our stint in lockdown last year and earlier this year, it's nice to be nice to be somewhere different. Um, and in fact, mask requirements come off well, ease a little bit as well as of far so. Yep. Hopefully we're on the right path. Right. Now, just to, I guess, lead into the conversation that we're going to be having and just to give the listeners an understanding of why we're here. So you were introduced to us um, by our good, fr- good friend, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who's been on the podcast a couple of times once for an episode to discuss um, photography in a podcast environment. And then he also did a webinar with us um, prior to that in the lockdowns we had last year. And he connected us and said that we would be probably, uh, well, what's the best way to describe it? We could help, I guess, promote what you're doing with Interplast, help take um, what you're doing to our audience. And most of the people that listen to us are are doctors and nurses in the aesthetics industry around the world. So quite a bit of synergy there. But just to give us a bit of a background, could you just tell us about who you are, your role at Interplast, and just a a brief summary of, of what it is that they do? Yeah, certainly. So I'm, I'm Cameron Glover. I'm been the CEO of Interplast for about the past 18 months. Uh, so just prior to COVID emerging as a global pandemic, I was appointed to lead a, an international development agency. So quite the introduction. <laughs> um, but Interplast more broadly is an organisation, uh, it's a development agency that works across 17 countries across the Asia-Pacific region. And primarily we provide plastic and reconstructive surgical care um, and the sort of the, the add-ons to those being you know, anaesthetic care and nursing care and, and into the allied health services as well. And we've been doing that since 1983. Uh, so it's a, it's a well-established organisation that's having a, a pretty significant impact around the globe. And, and how and, and why was it funded? What was the background to Interplast sort of being needed, I guess? Yeah, certainly. So, sadly, uh, around the world, 5 billion people can't access safe surgical care. Um, And and to put that into context, 90% of people in low and middle income countries cannot access surgical care at the time they need it. So, in 1969, 
there was a, a surgeon at Stanford University who believed that reconstructive plastic surgery could rehabilitate and reintegrate and transform lives. And so Interplast USA, as it was known at the time, was set up and it's now an organisation known as Research International. So that was set up in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And then there was a, an Australian-based plastic surgeon, uh, Leo Rosner, who attended one of the, the Interplast USA trips in South America. He came back and was talking to some Rotarians in, in Melbourne, and they saw there was a need to do what was occurring sort of globally, uh, locally. And so Interplast was established through a partnership between Rotary and the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And our first work was started in 1983, and we continue to this day. I was talking to my dad last night about um, the fact that we were having you on the podcast this morning and he's been involved in Rotary quite heavily for the last 20 years. And he told me all about you guys. I mean, I'd heard the name. I was familiar with what you guys had done. I'd seen in a few surgeons' offices over the years, pictures of them um, obviously working with you guys in, in different parts of the Asia-Pacific region. But he gave me a, quite an in-depth discussion about it all last night. So I had no idea that I was even connected through him, through what, he's got, with what you people do. So it was quite interesting to, to hear it from dad as well. So... Yeah. And what what exactly do, does the service look like? I mean, obviously with COVID, things have clearly changed, but prior to COVID, what, what what did it look like? How many countries were you able to get to per year and, you know, how many surgeries and things like that? Yeah, so so you're right. COVID has, has changed what we do and, and how we do it. Um, so prior to COVID, uh, we were working in 17 countries across the Asia-Pacific region. So sort of from a Pacific base, um, you know, you're looking at places like PNG, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Kiribati and the like. And then within Asia, some of the developing nations there. So as far as Mongolia and Myanmar, um, Nepal and Sri Lanka, Bangladesh and others such as Vietnam and the like. Um, so at its most traditional, I suppose you would say Interplast operated a fly-in, fly-out model where we would send teams of, of surgeons, anaesthetists, allied health professionals, depending on the need, into country for up to two weeks at a time to perform life-changing reconstructive surgery. And, you know, at its, its peak, we were sort of delivering 85 of those services each year. Uh, so somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, multiple thousands of patients that we would see each year. However, the thing that differentiates us as a development agency rather than a humanitarian organisation is that we only work where we're invited and our work is around building capacity. So it's one thing for us to go in and provide surgery, but all of that is done in partnership with local surgeons and you know that's done through the training and skills transfer of you know, the, the exceptional talents of Australian and New Zealand-based surgeons and then passing that information on and that knowledge on internationally. And, and so that's sort of a, a lasting legacy, if you like, of, of Interplast. And in an ideal world, we would get to a point where we're actually not returning to these countries because they have fully sustainable surgical systems themselves. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like in terms of how you decide where you're going, what are the most, because I'm sure there's there's plenty of needy causes, how do you sort of work out where you're going to go, who you're going to send there, and maybe just take us on a little bit of a, of a journey of what that may look like for, say, 
yeah, your average plastic surgeon or reconstructive surgeon that's going over there, just what the process is like? Yeah, certainly. So the the process starts many, many years actually before a, a surgeon gets anywhere near a patient um, in some ways. So there's always a needs assessment that's undertaken. That needs assessment is usually based on available data, whether it's World Health Information data um, or sort of medical and, and clinical need that the, the relevant government agency has, has released. Usually a country would request our service and so that would be done through um, them reaching out to us directly or through them reaching out to the Australian government through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and then they would identify us as a possible solution to the challenge. Then a sort of a, an in-country needs assessment would be done. So one of our team, usually clinical team, as well as development staff would go over and have a look at, at what's available, what the needs are. And then from that, uh, we would send in the first team of, of surgeons um, to whatever hospital we're partnering with. And, and usually it's a fairly experienced surgeon that goes in. Um, and in fact, all our surgeons are fellows of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. So they, they must be perhaps qualified um, for, for that to occur. And then many of our surgeons, in fact, the vast majority of our surgeons, uh, repeat, repeat visitors. So once we're in a country, we're actually there for an extended period. And certainly there's a number of countries that we've been in since 1984 and, and up until COVID hadn't, hadn't missed a year. That's fantastic. And, and how many surgeons do you, do you have on your books, as it were? I mean, is it 50, 100 more? No, so it's it's multiple hundreds. So if you look at if you look at all the uh, all the volunteer positions that we have, sort of across the four key areas of of surgery, uh, anaesthetic, nurses, and allied health, we're looking around four hundred volunteers. Wow. Which I'd say about three hundred of those are active in any single year. And then you know, in some ways, COVID changed that. So we have a whole lot that can't go anywhere. But some of the work we're doing at the moment means that we can actually get new volunteers involved as well because people that weren't able to attend in the past um, can now can now support in other ways. And what type of surgeries are being performed? I had a look on your website, looking at people that have been horrifically affected by burns. I'm looking at birth deformities, cleft palates, all those sorts of stuff. Is, is that the, the main type of surgical intervention that's happening? It is. It is. So, as you know, as as you know, and certainly as all your listeners know, uh, plastic surgery is more than just uh, the aesthetic side of of the, the body. However, everything we do, as far as restoring function, is is still aesthetic in some form as well. I mean, if you have a patient with a cleft lip and palate. There are significant challenges with you know, feeding and speech development and that sort of thing. But ultimately, there's a real risk that they'll be ostracised and alienated from community because of the physical disability that, that appears. So most of our work is around restoring function. And to your point, it's cleft lip and palate repair. Um, and that's probably still the most common uh, condition that we see, certainly in a number of the countries where we work. Sadly, significant issues with burns um, and and certainly the burns differ from country to country um, as, as far as the cause of burns. 
but it is a, a significant challenge and and, and burns injuries usually require multiple surgeries, so it's not just the one-off, the contracture. So the, the toughening and the tightening of the skin continues over a number of years, and so it's you know, quite likely that that patient would see a number of surgeons to, to have the contracture released regularly. But even areas like um, you know, cancer removal and, and that sort of thing is is fairly common, particularly in lips, um, so facial um facial cancers, um, and then areas such as you know, diabetic foot care um, often require the, the skills of a reconstructive surgeon as well. So it, it differs greatly, um, but it's it's just the sort of surgery you'd expect to see in any major hospital in Australia or New Zealand. Of the countries that you guys have been to, do they have established plastic surgery services already or have you sort of, you know, uh, put the, the grassroots in as it were? Yeah, look, differs differs greatly depending where we are. So if you look at some of the Asian countries where we work, places like Sri Lanka are doing some incredible work in plastics and you know, places like Nepal have really strong plastic surgery um, sort of specialties and subsets. And now we're starting to do a lot more work with them in microsurgery, so really fine uh, surgery. Whereas across the Pacific, there is one fully qualified plastic surgeon in PNG. There's one fully qualified plastic surgeon in Fiji, wow. and that is it. Um, so there's, you know, the, the challenge there is some of those countries will never sustain a plastic surgery team or unit. Um, you will never see plastic surgeons sort of permanently based in some of the smaller islands. So then our challenge is to develop uh, general surgeons that can undertake some basic plastics work. And we're doing that, you know, it's certainly in all the countries where we work. But where we can see pathways, we're working with governments and ministries of health to develop plastic surgery curriculums. Um, so there is a, a training pathway as well. But it's it differs greatly depending where we are. And what about the type of facilities that are being used to opt to, I guess, perform these surgeries? I mean, are these surgeons getting an idea about what they're walking into before they get there, what sort of instrumentation, you know, sterile technique, all, all that sort of stuff? How do they? How do you sort of deal with that and how do these surgeons get a grasp of what they're going to be walking into? Oh, absolutely. So, look, most of the surgeons that we're taking with us um, are probably used to working in you know, tertiary yeah. hospitals in, in Australia and New Zealand where, you know, there's – the basics like clean running water and, and electricity and, and that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned you know, that we were introduced through Woodrow. Woodrow actually went on one of our programs to to the uh, to Mongolia, where he would have seen that our surgeons were operating without electricity, and so they were using headlamps to to operate. Wow. That was what was available. We do a fairly extensive briefing with our teams before they go, and certainly if they're going anywhere, they're partnered with people that have been there before, so there's some experience in what they're operating in. The, the environment that they're working in differs, again, greatly. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to join our surgical teams in the Solomon Islands. It's a pretty basic operating theatre. Um, you know, there's good anaesthetic care, there's you know, clean running water and electricity. So that's, you know, the first things. Um, but sterilisation of instrumentation may still be happening through, you know, the use of boiling water and 
and that sort of thing rather than really good quality thermocues and and the opportunity to sterilize equipment so it differs amazingly you know significantly and 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 country by country and even location by location i mean if you look at the solomon islands as an example the national referral hospital which is the primary hospital in the capital in honiara is a fairly basic institution but it's a really good quality uh, hospital with some incredible staff if you go out to one of the outlying islands and operate in the hospital in Gizo, it's an incredible hospital that was um, built by an international government as a gift to the Solomon Islands, but it doesn't have the, the staff available to run it. So you've got quite differing responses depending where you are. Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy, but I, I guess you're not going to to conflict zones or, or or anything dangerous like that. So when you're when you guys are sort of, I guess, planning the logistics, are you taking everything with you just in case, or do you know what's available and you're just you know sort of mixing and matching? Look, we we certainly take uh, a considerable amount of consumable product. Um, so we you know things like sutures and that sort of thing. We're we're sending a lot of. Um, usually, we'll take a full set of surgical equipment and, and often will take an anaesthetic monitor or the like. So, you know, my, my tip to anyone that sees a, an Interplast team at the at an airport is to get in front of them because <laughs> when, we, when we check in, you know, things like uh, 300 kilos of excess baggage plus, you know, some fairly sensitive uh, medicines and the like, it's, it, it's quite the lengthy process if you're stuck behind us. Um, there's actually no simple answer, though, because some countries where we work, they do have well-established you know, procurement systems, and so they can get what's needed locally. Um, but often, we're taking a fairly extensive amount of equipment, and and you know, the idea is that we would never leave a hospital less resourced after we leave than when than when we're on. A lot of people, unfortunately, and I'm probably one of them that's become a little bit cynical over the years when you see... Um, these sorts of charitable organisations and you sort of wonder to yourself, you know, where's all the money actually going and, and how much is ending up, you know, where it needs to be, how much is being lost in administrative costs. I'm doing that in inverted commas. Um, you know, we're living in a world where these sorts of things occur. So my, my cynical my cynical mind sometimes goes to that place, which I, sadly it probably shouldn't. But do you want to just tell us how it works from an interplast perspective? Yeah, certainly. And look, sadly, you're not alone in, in that sense of, doubting where the funds go and that's something that every charity in Australia and, and even globally needs to overcome and address. To put it in an interplast context, so we need to raise somewhere in the vicinity of two to three million dollars each year to undertake our work. That two to three million dollars then supports you know, 17 countries and, and possibly 85 surgical, 85 programs where we're working and three to 400 volunteers who all give freely of their time and their talent. As an organisation, I have less than 10 staff, so it's a quite a small organisation as far as how we, we manage. But I would also say, and it's, it, it's a sad but true fact, you know, the, a lot of our administrative burden, for want of a better word, is actually around the compliance and logistics put on it. Um, you know, as you can appreciate, you know, the, 
the transport of, of, of drugs, it doesn't happen without some level of compliance. The mm-hmm. transport of surgical equipment, the insuring of, of practitioners to make sure they're protected, um, and even things that you know, people don't like to look at or perhaps overlook, things like child protection requirements in the countries where we work. In Australia and New Zealand, we take it for granted, um, but in the countries where we work, we do need to put in place some additional safeguards, not only for the patients, but also for our clinicians as well. So most of our, our funding, where it's not going to direct patient care or the provision of training and surgical services, uh, is actually around compliance with the obligations that we're required to undertake. Interplast is a, an accredited international NGO. So what that means is that there's a, an accreditation requirement um, imposed by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And so we have to meet certain standards and some of those standards are quite simple to address, others are, are much harder. I suppose what I would say is any organisation that you're looking at that does have that level of accreditation, you can usually be pretty confident the money is going directly to the field because that is one of the requirements and it's one of the things that DFAT look at to ensure that you know, good use of development funding. That's great to know. And to, I guess should ask a question, where did the donations come from? Do you have any regular um, donors or sponsors or do you have to hold big you know, charity events to sort of accumulate new sort of avenues for that? How does it work? Yeah, look, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, <laughs> there's always room for more. <laughs> so, no, look, I, I, I touched on on sort of the rotary relationship before as far as how we started. We are incredibly lucky that Rotarians across 1,400 clubs in Australia and New Zealand support Interplast quite generously. We have a small number of corporate partners who give either cash donation or perhaps more significantly product in, in kind, and that's you know critical for us. And then the vast majority of our funding, about 60%, actually comes from general public and community. And you know there are a number of donors who we would consider to be significant major donors based on the, the amount they give, and we have some very generous supporters that have been with us right from day one. But then the the vast majority of our funding actually comes from individuals who give you know, $20, $50, and $100 in support of our work. And and I've got to say, and you know, thankfully, perhaps some of the most generous are actually the patients of surgeons who are are working. And you know, to your point earlier, you've seen you know, the occasional photo of an interplast surgeon, you know, in their in their waiting room or the like. Um, it's actually their supporters and, and their patients that are some of our greatest supporters. That's fantastic. Well, if we've got any millionaires listening, uh, <laughs> feel free to dig deep into your pockets and we'll give the details at the end and it'll also be in the description um, on the podcast description on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so what, what must it be like? And I guess I'm asking you to get into the head of a patient, which is impossible, but I, I imagine that, you know, a lot of these people that are un- having these life-changing surgeries, they probably thought there was no hope. They were going to have to live with this all of a sudden. You know, someone flies in from another part of the world and offers them rest- a restorative procedure that's going to change their life, not only how they look and feel, but as you said, 
how they interact with the rest of um, people in their village or their community or wherever it is that they're from. So have you seen any of those experiences? Have you spoken to any sort of surgeons that have sort of gone through that? And can you just give us a bit of insight into what that what that may feel like? Yeah, look, absolutely. So I, th- I think there's there's probably sort of three separate categories of, of, of experience here. And, and perhaps if I start with, you know, the, the surgeons that are going on these programs and the anaesthetists and nurses and allied health professionals as well, so many of them recognise that they have an incredible skill set that, you know, is well-developed, they've been lucky and they've benefited from, you know, incredible training and mentoring and support. And so it's their way to give back. And many of them often say that their work with Interplast almost makes them a better surgeon at home because so much of surgery occurs before the surgery actually takes place. It's the planning, it's the preparation, it's the working out, you know, what to do, when to do it and how to respond. And when you take those skills and put them in quite a basic setting or a low income setting, it does sort of force you to, to focus a little bit more on, on what the likely patient outcome is. So for our volunteers, it's, it is genuinely life-changing for them as well. If you then look to some of their international colleagues who are benefiting from working alongside some world-leading surgeons, um, it's an experience they wouldn't normally get and, you know, we, we have an example at the moment. There is an incredibly talented surgeon in Bhutan. He's a Bhutanese surgeon. And he's benefiting from a weekly Zoom call, effectively, with an Adelaide-based surgeon to talk through caseload and patient stories and, you know, planning of, of future surgery. That's something that he can't access locally. And so it's through the Interplus connection where that's occurred. And then finally, if you look at a patient who, you know, to your point, you know, may have experienced a severe trauma in their life and, and therefore need need surgery, or in fact, through no fault of their own or no fault of their parents, they've been born with a birth uh, defect or a disability. I'm not sure anything I can say will truly articulate what they would experience and, and how that would occur, but to put it in a context that I have seen, I mentioned earlier that I was able to visit the Solomon Islands with one of our, our teams. On that program, I met a six-year-old boy, a uh, little boy who, for all intents and purposes, should have been living a happy, healthy, normal life. He should have been thinking about starting school. He should have been experiencing the joys that, you know, little kids have of, of playing sport and, you know, getting involved in his community and that sort of thing. He sadly had been born with a, a small birth defect, which meant that he had a, a growth on his face that continued to grow larger and larger as he got older and older. Sadly, that growth started to impact his vision. It then started to impact on his throat and his breathing because of the, the way it was growing. And what was effectively a 40-minute operation changed his life. You know, he was now able to reintegrate back into his community because he could go to school because he was no longer likely to be teased as a result of the growth on his face. He could see for the first time in a long time because it was no longer covering his eye. And perhaps most significantly and most importantly, he could breathe unencumbered 
because it was no longer pressing on his throat. And so you look at you know, a, a kid like that who at age six has his entire future ahead of him, but perhaps if it wasn't for an endoplast surgeon, wouldn't have the future that he now can have. And you go, well, you know, when we talk funding and resourcing or when we talk about how we prioritise cases, it's pretty easy to see why, you know, a six-year-old should have life-changing surgery if it's available to them. And dare I say it, if you were three hours closer to us and he wasn't in Honiara, he was in Brisbane, the surgery that he had at age six by an interplast volunteer would have been surgery that he'd had at three months old or you know, no later than 12 months old, and he would have known no different. And so you, you look at that and you go, well, the impact on the, the individual is incredible, but the impact on his family is also incredible. You know, his, his dad can you know, now go back to work because he's no longer caring for a, a child that is you know, suffering at, at perhaps his most vulnerable, his older sister, can now sort of introduce their little brother with, you know, the, well, the, the same level of respect that any older sister gives their little brother, but, <laughs> you know, can, can now talk with, with some pride about this as my little brother, not here is someone that we need to hide away in the home and and, and not have in the community. And I, you know, it, it's pretty powerful to see, so I can only imagine how it would feel when you know, your life literally changes as a result of a, a reconstructive surgery project. That's incredible work. I'm sure you've got hundreds and hundreds of stories like that. What what do the your your travelling surgeons have to say about the cases they see? Because presumably, like you said, they'll never see some of these things here in Australia. So even though they're you know experienced surgeons, they're probably learning themselves by seeing such uh, unusual cases, advanced cases, and and severe cases. Absolutely, they are. And, you know, if, if you talk to them, they'll, they'll often say, you know, they're, they're seeing things for the first time. Uh, they're perhaps responding in a way that they never thought they would have to respond to. You know, even just drawing on that, that case just before, relatively straightforward procedure, about 40 minutes on an operating table. But because the child was aged six, the, the condition had progressed significantly further than what it would have done had they you know, been based in Brisbane and, and been seen at you know a couple of months old. And it's the same with a, you know, a, a cleft lip or palate repair. You know, a, we sort of take for granted that a cleft lip is repaired relatively early in life, as is a cleft palate. Um, yes, there's some ongoing support through you know, speech pathology and the like to, to address any concerns. But actually, you, know, you can see adults in some of these countries that have um, you know, a, a cleft palate. And you think, well, you know, they've gone through their entire life unable to properly feed because you know, the, the open palate means that food is, is not digesting properly. They're most likely having speech difficulties and, and all of those things. So when you get an Australian or a New Zealand-based surgeon seeing that, most of them can draw on the basics of surgery and say you know, the principles apply whether it's a, a, a child or a, a teen or a, an adult. Um, and then it's just a matter of they just work through that process of planning the planning the case and ensuring there's a positive patient outcome. Um, but absolutely, they're seeing things that they wouldn't normally see. And in some cases, they're seeing things that 
look more like a major trauma that you would expect to see in a major trauma hospital uh, than you would in a sort of a paediatric ward or the like. I'm assuming that it, it's probably quite sobering and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not, not medically trained, but just p- trying to put myself into the shoes of these men and women that go over there and, and, and donate their time and their skills. You know, when you're back here and you're in the aesthetics field, you know, you're dealing with people that are seeking perfection, some people that have unrealistic unreal- expectations or this boob slightly bigger than this boob or my, I've got this little bump on my nose. And I, I think that sometimes you can lose perspective of what's really important and you start to feel, I'm assuming, I could be wrong, you know, some surgeons may feel, God, you know, is this, you know, yes, it's a great industry. Yes, the income's fantastic, but am I really feeling fulfilled? And, I, I you know, maybe these sorts of, um, I guess, you know, trips overseas and, and, and doing this sort of thing could be almost like a reset or, or a, you know, give people like a, a new sort of, I guess, respect for what it is that they do and, and feeling like their skills are being really utilised to really help people not, you know, address and sort of feed the things like body dysmorphia and all the some things that we've discussed on this podcast, you know, over and over again. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah look, we, we, we actually hear that a lot where, um, you know, surgeons, you know, are very aware of the, the privilege that they've perhaps, you know, now have because they've worked incredibly hard and, you know, they've set up a a well-resourced practice and the like. And this is their way of giving something back for, for want of a better term. However, I think we, we also have to be careful in that, you know, never to underestimate the work that they're doing in Australia oh, as course. well in the sense of, you know, that that lesion on the nose or the, you know, the breast that needs to be reconstructed. Um, there's an underlying cause to that as well. And I think, you know, the work they do in their, their private practice or in a, a, a tertiary hospital here um, makes them an incredibly skilled surgeon and it's just a matter of transferring those skills to other parts of the body. And and in many ways, plastic surgery and reconstructive surgery is the one surgical specialty that can work head to toe, inside and out. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have incredible surgeons that focus on other parts of the, the anatomy but it's a plastic surgeon that is actually the one that's working across the entire body. And, you know, the the skills they develop in, you know, particularly from an aesthetic point of view around, you know, good quality suturing and, and you know, um, sort of the shaping of, of body parts and the like, all those things matter just as much in developing nations as they do here. So I think... Yeah, my message to any surgeon, particularly the aesthetic surgeons, is don't assume you can't do the work just because you're not doing the work day in, day out. How do you recruit your surgeons and, and you know, how many new people join you every year and, you know, does it grow and grow or do people sort of come and go? Look, we're, we're incredibly lucky actually in that we don't actively recruit because people tend to come to us. Um, they, you know... As you'd be aware, surgeons in in Australia at least have incredible networks and incredible um, you know, mentors themselves. And so often you'll see you know, a, a more experienced surgeon tap one of the the more junior surgeons, sort of on the shoulder, and say, "Look, I've been doing this for years. Come and join me because it's it's life changing." So we actually have no shortage of volunteers. I think one of the great things, if there is such a thing that's come out of the last twelve, eighteen months with COVID is that 
often you've got volunteers who, for all sorts of reasons, can't give their time internationally. They can't you know, travel. They may have a young family. They're just setting up their practice, whatever the case may be. But actually, because of the advances in technology and support, we can do things like offer international telehealth. And so you can have a, you know, a, a highly skilled individual that perhaps doesn't think they're ready to travel internationally because it's not what they're wanting to do or they can't. But they can still offer support through, you know, the provision of telehealth or even training and, and mentoring. Um, and it's, you know, for that reason, we do see a, a turnover and a continued growth in our volunteer numbers. Um, you know, my my honest view would be I would love to see every every surgeon in Australia experience on some level an interplast program because I think it is truly life changing and you know not only do the countries where we work get the benefit from, I think the patients in Australia and New Zealand also get the benefit from it. Yeah. Have you guys explored the idea um, of potentially bringing surgeons from overseas to Australia and actually watching spending time in theatres? I'm imagining that sometimes it could be difficult for surgeons that are busy here to sort of get get, and get up and go. And I know you said you've got no shortage of volunteers, but just in terms of being able to bring them over and see the facilities that we're operating in here, pick up, you know, systems and processes that perhaps they wouldn't get just from someone coming over there and, and doing procedures for a week or two. Is that something that you guys have looked at? Yeah, look, it's something we've looked at, but it's actually something we do as well in okay, the sense of, okay. yeah, we do. So um, a number of years ago, we ran an anatomy workshop um, over a, probably a week-long course in, in Hobart where we brought a number of the Pacific surgeons to, to Tasmania and, and gave them that sort of opportunity. But more than that, um, we're actually looking to bring out a Sri Lankan surgeon uh, out to one of the, the major paediatric hospitals in, in Melbourne in early 2022, and they will do a full 12-month placement out here. Um, the surgeon I mentioned before that we're working with in Bhutan, um, he's likely to come out in 2023 to spend 12 months in an Adelaide-based hospital um, to then take that skill set and you know, they then become the, the trainer themselves, if you like, um, because they take it back to their country and, and really sort of improve their skill and the skill of their colleagues. So it's it's something we do and we offer a number of scholarships in that area so we can support you know, clinicians from low-income countries to do exactly that. I think that's brilliant. And I, I support your idea of taking, you know, maybe the Australian trainees to, to go and join maybe their consultant abroad because I remember when I did surgical training, you know, everyone fights to go to the big tertiary hospitals because that's where, where all the cool fancy stuff happens. But can you imagine these cases that you'd never see in your lifetime and you get to spend a week or two assisting your consultant seeing very, very unusual complex cases? You'll come back very uh, experienced and competent because then you're dealing with simpler things here, here in Australia. So I think that's something I'd fully support, yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, we've been incredibly lucky through some of our corporate partners who have directly facilitated, you know, the the placement of medical students to go on some of our programs as an observer, um, or in fact, as a you know, there's a, a scholarship for new fellows, uh, sort of in their first five years of practice uh, post fellowship to go and experience an interplast program as well. And I think, you know, you see what it does for them as a young surgeon. They may then sort of move on temporarily as they're setting up, you know, family and, and practice, but then often they come back and, and that's that's great to see because the 
I think so much of the strength of our work is actually built through the long-term partnership and the long-term relationship. And it's, it is very different to perhaps that traditional humanitarian model where a patient is the beneficiary, rightly so. Um, but for us, it's, it's that partnership of working alongside international colleagues that's so important. I'm interested to know how you guys are using Zoom. I mean, you know, we're Zooming right now and we've had some clunky <laughs> podcasts in, in the past where we're just having a conversation. So I'm, I'm just thinking about your Bhutanese surgeon who you're upskilling and training and, and teaching. How are you doing that? What, and, and how does that work? Yeah, so look, sadly, and, and perhaps more of an indictment on the Australian internet uh, providers uh, a number of the countries where we work actually have better connectivity than than you and I sitting at different sides of the country that that said we run weekly webinars through zoom and it's it's put then on a, a platform known as prax hub which is a, a clinical education site that do some amazing work and so all of our our webinars and and video assets all become free of charge globally so there's there's no sort of limitation for access. So at its most basic, you're right, it's just a Zoom conversation or presentation. We are starting to see some really exciting advances though in, you know, virtual reality type training programs and and augmented reality and the like. And in mm. fact, in the not too distant future, we'll actually trial um, some some glasses that are, are worn by the the surgeon internationally and we will then be able to sit here watching a, a computer screen seeing exactly what they see and we'll be able to provide lifetime live feedback and, and real-time response. That's already in practice, you know, in you know, in many places. Um, it's just a matter of ensuring that we've got the, the internet connectivity and effectively a 4G connection will be enough to to change that. Now yeah. if we can do that, we can change the face of surgical training across the globe. Well, we can hook you up with uh, Professor Shafi Ahmed. We had him on the podcast and he's leading the way with that technology. So I don't know if you know about him, but we can certainly share email addresses and see see what can happen. Because I know he, he does humanitarian work in Palestine and Bangladesh and all over the place. So yeah, we're happy to connect you guys. We'd certainly welcome that connection. Great. Absolutely. So you touched on, on your scholarship programs. Could you just give us a little bit more detail about, about how that works? Yeah, so again, different scholarships work in, in different ways, but each each year we um, release a, a number of scholarship funds uh, known as the Marshall Scholars um, in, in recognition of, of a, a long-time surgeon. But the Marshall Scholarship Program is the opportunity to traditionally bring out surgeons from Australia and New Zealand to, uh, sorry, internationally, uh, bring them out to Australia and New Zealand to attend the, the RACS ASC or um, the, the Society of Plastic Surgeons um, annual congress or that sort of thing. So there's a way to, to upskill and train there. More recently, recognising that uh, women are severely underrepresented in the surgical area. Uh, we're delivering a number of gender-specific uh, scholarships so we can help support women in, in a emerging sort of practice across across the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, but although we often focus on the surgeons, we run similar programs for anaesthetists. Uh, each year we bring two anaesthetists out from Indonesia 
um, under a scholarship program and they actually spend some time in Ballarat and then, again, some of the major hospitals in Melbourne um, to improve their anaesthetic care. And then we send them back with with ongoing support and mentoring as well. So it, it differs. And what I would probably say is the only thing that limits our ability to offer scholarships is our ability to access funds. Um, and I think, you know, we often assume scholarships are an incredibly expensive thing. Um, for something as little as $5,000, we can really change the the training of a, of a surgeon um, for years to come. So it's, yeah, yeah I'd say more funding equals more scholarships. More yeah, scholarships equals better patient outcomes. Have you ever had any awkward moments where you took, you know, female surgeons to particular countries and there was a bit of a you know, awkward situation there because of just the cultural differences? Yeah, look, thankfully we haven't, but that's more good management, I suppose, than good luck in that, and it goes back to that notion that we often go back to the same countries time and time again. We have long-held relationships with with um, sort of ministries of health and local partners and the like. And so we would never put any of our volunteers, male or female, into a situation where we think it's unlikely to work but more importantly, um, because we can be aware and because we are working closely with with international partners, we know what's likely to work or not work anyway. And so, much would it's not say it's never going to happen, uh, but we haven't had anything to date where it's been you know, culturally inappropriate. Um, but it's it's through a lot of work with partners to to make sure the team fit is right. And, and team fit is so important. Not not only are you bringing together. A group of surgeons, nurses, anaesthetists, and allied health professionals from Australia that just don't traditionally work together. Um, you're then placing them into a low-income setting with a team that you know, may not work together regularly as well. Um, and then, in some countries, you add in you know, language barriers and the like. Um, it it changes the dynamic again. So it's there's a lot of work to uh, to really make sure it works well. Yeah, I was curious to know whether sort of those local surgeons in the other countries having seen, you know, maybe things that they've never seen before, like, I don't know, a female plastic surgeon, had that inspired them and maybe changed their attitudes and, 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 and you know, inspired younger girls there in the other countries? It, it does. It does. And in fact, we see regularly and in fact, we part of our work is sort of modelling and role modelling what, you know, a good team would look like. Um and even something you know as simple that you and I would take for granted is how a surgeon then refers a patient on to rehabilitation services. Again, in an Australian-based hospital, the, the physiotherapist is probably likely to accompany the um, you know the surgeon on onto a ward round. There would be a, a formal handover. There would be you know a patient care plan established and that sort of thing. In a number of the countries where we work, that hasn't traditionally been the case. Um, so even just our teams doing that alongside their international colleagues, they're starting to see that actually a logical patient referral system makes sense. Um, but then to your point, and you you know you look at some of the the doctors and you know globally this isn't a isn't a situation just for developing nations where often it's the surgeon that speaks and sort of no one else would would ever <laughs> dare dare sort of question. Um, 
good patient outcomes actually require debate. They require people to question and to say why or why this way or why now. And so actually seeing nurses and and more junior surgeons questioning the, the, the decision-making of the surgeon, it actually makes the surgeon a better surgeon because they have to you know, be confident in their, their approach. But actually it's resulting in better patient outcomes as well because there is a different lens from which someone's looking. Um, and so that's incredibly satisfying to see when we see, you know, countries that are quite traditional in their approach and that no one would ever challenge a doctor to actually respectfully challenge and debate. That's only a good thing. Yeah, such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I've been hearing um, my partner's uh, doing nursing at the moment and she's been telling me, you know, bits and pieces about case studies that they sort of teach now in, in the hospital setting about these situations where something occurs in the operating theatre and no one says anything because they're scared to question the anaesthetist or the surgeon. And there have been instances where really horrific things have happened. So I think it's it's a good point that you've made, just empowering people to always think about the patient as number one and being uh, confident enough to be able to put their opinion forward or, as you said, question things so that we can get better patient outcomes. So I think that's something that's would be beneficial globally, not just overseas. Yeah. I think the other element to that too is actually getting the patient involved in their treatment. Um, so, you know, it's, it's often very easy to assume that just because someone has a condition, whatever that condition may be, that they want it fixed and that they're quite happy with whatever the outcome will be because that's, you know, that's what good medicine says is that you know, there's a problem, therefore fix it. Um, but actually explaining what's involved and getting the um, getting the patient involved in you know this is going to take some time and it's going to hurt and it's going to you know require ongoing support. Working with our international colleagues to start having those conversations with patients um, again only leads to better patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. What is Lifebox? I've had I had a read of it on your website. It sounds very it sounds very exciting. You just tell us what it's all about. Yeah, certainly. So Lifebox is a, a global organisation, and it's I suppose you'd if I was to sum it up, you'd say it's a global not for profit focused on improving um, safety of surgery and anaesthetic care, uh, particularly in low income settings. So fancy way of saying there are three key areas of focus for Lifebox. Uh, one is the supply of pulse oximetry, um, which is essential for good quality surgery. Um, one is uh, sort of looking at safer surgery. And the third sort of element of Lifebox is to look at reducing um, infection rates on surgical sites. So it's a global organisation that's based internationally. Interplast has a role in that, in that we are one of four organisations within the Asia-Pacific region that have come together to make up Lightbox International, uh, Lightbox Australia and New Zealand, sort of a, an offshoot of Lightbox International. And working with um, our anaesthetic colleagues, uh, looking at how we can deliver oximetry predominantly across low-income settings in the Asia-Pacific region, but then also how we can do things like reduce infection rates. And, and infection rates aren't necessarily a result of bad practice, it's often, you know, the tropical setting of the, the environment that leads to increased infection, or it may be that, you know, the, the patient has presented too late, and so therefore the infection rate is likely to be higher as well. So 
Lifebox addresses that globally and we have a role to play in the region. That's brilliant. And I'm just curious to know, you know, once the team leaves after two, three weeks, what happens to those patients who are still inpatients or still needing care? Do you sort of have a, like a regular Zoom ward round or, you know, how do you support those, those existing doctors in the hospital? Yeah, certainly. So it's, it, there's no perfect answer and there's no perfect solution because to your point, we do leave at some point. When we're deciding who we see and, and the order in which the, the surgeries are conducted and that sort of thing, one of the considerations is you know, not doing a particularly complex surgery at the end of the, the caseload because you know, you're not, they're not going to be there for post-operative care and, and the like. So that's, that's factored into the planning. Mm-hmm. But perhaps one of the um, sort of the, the more challenging things, but again, the introduction of, of technology has allowed for this to happen, is that we can remain in regular contact with the surgeon on the ground, whoever that may be. Um, we have, as I said, the incredible relationships with, with sort of our nursing colleagues as well in those, those countries. And so we're, we're looking at you know, how we can better support them. Um, but yes, we are actually starting sort of through the provision of telehealth in a, in a way we can actually do sort of post-operative consultations on the other side of the world. And actually that's often then when the allied health professionals get actively involved as well, because then they can you know, build on sort of ongoing you know, rehab and that sort of thing. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see the way technology will enhance what you guys are doing and what you're able to do into the future. I was reading an article a couple of months ago about the advancement of sort of robotic surgical intervention where you might have a surgeon in New York operating on someone in another part of the world remotely through a piece of um, robotic equipment. So that might be something that um, allows you to to sort of reach even more people and and make it more accessible in the future. I'm I'm assuming you're all over that. You're watching what's happening. You're watching what's happening. Well, the division about a million dollars, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, correct. So, you know, when we talk about funding, let's talk about those robots. Um, no, look. So, as a you know, I, I'm not a clinician, um, but I think I read more surgical uh, <laughs> articles than most clinicians do. I, I think I should start applying for you know, recognition through the colleges. <laughs> um, the the honest the honest answer, though, I think you know. Technology will change our work. It, it already has and it will continue to do so. But I think technology will actually um, allow us to go further in the sense of, you know, we you know, traditionally we work in 17 countries. Already in the last 12 months, we've seen an increase in that through where we've been able to run training and webinars. Um, but we will get to a point where we are able to you know, conduct surgery effectively from the other side of the world. And that's never going to replace a skilled surgeon with a scalpel standing alongside a patient. But it will allow a time uh, and it, it will allow for you know some of the more simplistic procedures to be done perhaps in a timely manner. And so that will actually then allow the more complex surgeries to be prioritised because the, the basics will have been covered off. And that's that's a pretty exciting development for global health. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine uh, a plastic surgery registrar here in Sydney <laughs> having an elective list every week where he does cleft palates from Bhutan? Yeah, incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Someday. Yeah, it'll be an adjunct, as you said. There's nothing probably replace um, 
having a surgeon there in person. Although, you know, my dad just had some um, surgery done with the Da Vinci machine because they did it, you know, via four incisions in his stomach and it was less in like his healing time was going to be faster and it's, it's yeah. just more, more precise. So I think that, um, te- as you said, technology will only enhance what we do moving forward. But what are your plans for Interplast over the next sort of two to five years? I feel like I'm giving you a job interview, but just out of curiosity, you know, what, what, what what's the roadmap look like for you? What's the dream board look like? Well, if I can Indeed. add to that, if you, do you have a crystal ball? When are we going to be flying again first? <laughs> well, look, the, the easier question on then is probably what is my vision over the next 10 years? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, well, actually, let's start with when we're flying. When are we going on holidays? I wouldn't make any plans anytime soon. Um, I am hopeful that we might get back into the Pacific towards the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. But I think our return to some of the Asian countries where we support is probably uh, further off. Mm-hmm. Here I say vaccination rates are going to matter. Um, and I think that's, you know, if we can do nothing else, you know, getting as much of the population you know, access to a, a good quality vaccine is going to be important. As far as, you know, the, the vision for Interplast, if you like, um, and yes, it does feel like a job interview and I, I feel like I went through the same same series of questions <laughs> 18 months ago. <laughs> I, 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 I'm hoping my answers are relatively the same, but but, but effectively um, by 2030, we've actually set a, a fairly ambitious target um, for the organisation that we will seek to support an additional 20,000 patients over the next 10 years. We're seeking to train an additional 7,500 clinicians across the Asia-Pacific region, work to improve 80 partner hospitals and primarily be based in in 20 countries across the region. So they're not small uh, ambitions by any stretch of the imagination, but when you consider that 5 billion people globally don't have access to safe and effective surgery, um, in some ways it's a a small drop in the ocean. But to your your earlier point, how do you measure the the impact on one individual who you've changed their life? Or how do you measure really the impact on the the surgeon based in Solomon Islands or Bhutan or Vietnam, who then goes on to treat thousands of patients across their surgical career? So if we can do that, 20,000 patients, 7,500 additional clinicians, that's going to be a good thing. Yeah. Well, before Jake and I went on the air, we were, we were sort of talking about um, potential future discussions with you. We, you know, would love the opportunity to maybe talk with some of the surgeons that have been there, talk about some experiences. I mean, we've worked pretty hard to, to build this platform, but if there's something that we can do to, to give back and, and to help spread the word and, you know, most of the people that listen to this podcast are medical professionals in this space. So um, whatever we can do as well. I'm yeah, sure. absolutely. And like I mentioned, if there's any millionaires with two or three million dollars just flying <laughs> down the back of the sofa, um, you know who to send it to now. And if you've got a Da Vinci robot gathering dust in the corner of your bedroom, <laughs> please donate it to Interplast as well. Absolutely. But, but I think too, and you know, right, look, only one millionaire, I'd, I'd happily have two or three millionaires that come, come in our direction. But I think the other thing too, you know, the cost of surgery and the cost of um, training good quality surgeons is not as expensive as perhaps some people think. And, and you know, to my point earlier, we need to raise two to three million dollars each year, and you know, traditionally that would allow us to deliver eighty-five programs across seventeen countries. You know, it, it jokes aside, the, the twenty-dollar donation is actually just as valuable to us 
um, as the the two million dollar donation. So I'd I'd happily accept uh, either or and both. <laughs> Perfect. And and how do people go about donating? Just remind us. Yeah, certainly. So the easiest the easiest way to donate is just via our website. So www.interplast.org.au. Um, and certainly all the, the donation links are there. Um, or you can find us on, on Facebook or any of the regular social media channels and you'd be able to donate through those platforms as well. Mm, fantastic. And just a reminder, it'll be at the bottom of the podcast description. Yeah. And um, so obviously you take, uh, you said minimum requirement for surgeons is FRACS, so uh, specialty, specialty um, surgical qualifications. What about you said allied health professionals, including nurses in that as well? No, so nurses we we include separately. So, uh, from a nursing point of view, look, uh, ward nursing or theatre work uh, nursing is is important because yep. there's a role for both. Um, and so, I would say to to any of the nurses listening, if you are registered as a nurse, if it's of any interest, um, if you can demonstrate recent practice, um, then more than happy to have a conversation about whether or not you'd you'd fit sort of an interplus program. But again, because of some of the training that we're delivering, um, you know, they need not go on a program itself. They can do it from the, the comfort of their office or their lounge room. Fantastic. And what um, allied specialties might you be interested in? Yeah, so from an allied health point of view, uh, physiotherapy and occupational therapy are the two sort of ones that we spend uh, most of our time in. Um, but starting to see more work with speech therapy as well. Um, and so I would happily you know, have conversations with anyone that's interested. And, you know, it, it's a little bit generic to say, you know, if you've got the skill or you think you might have the skill, um, reach out to us because I think that is actually the, the request. If you have an interest in the skill, um, usually we can find a way to, to make those two match. Yeah. What about things like um, just throwing ideas out here, like it's my organisation? What about um, what about ideas? You know, people from a psychological perspective. You know, a lot of these physical traumas will be accompanied by a severe um, mental side of things as well. Absolutely. One, I'm I'm thinking my job's under threat given that uh, <laughs> <laughs> given this, but I'm also thinking you've read our unreleased the strategic plan at this stage because oh, okay. you, you're talking directly to some of these areas. Right. Uh, no, the certainly your point is absolutely valid though, that there is a, a role for mental health support, and over the next number of years, we are looking at how we can. Um, bring in some mental health practitioners as well to support patients in not only to help them with the decision-making process as to whether or not they have the surgery in the first place, uh, but what the impact is post-operatively as well. And in many cases, sort of the, the reintroduction and the reintegration back into their community, um, that does require sort of mental health and psychological support. So we are looking at that. Um, it's it's probably the next iteration of, of what we look like, um, but it's it's not that far off. Fantastic. Well, we've really appreciated your time and um, hopefully we can get some attention and maybe some surgeons and nurses and anyone else uh, to grow your ranks. And um, yeah, we, thank you very much for joining us today, Cameron. Thanks for having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to promote Interplast. Really appreciate it. Fantastic. And um, so you said that the best way to get in touch is via the website. Do you want to give your email address? I'm not sure whether you guys do social media or not. Maybe it's not your thing, but just all the ways they can get in contact before we let you go. 
Yeah, certainly. So w- website is the easiest option, but uh, you will find Interplast um, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, um, mostly under the, the handles of Interplast ANZ. Uh, and then if anyone does want to send an email, um, the best email, which is regularly monitored and by default unlikely to get lost in my inbox, uh, is contact us at interplast.org.au. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it, as we said. And thanks again to Woodrow for the introduction and putting us in contact. Very worthwhile cause and best of luck for the challenging times ahead with the travel restrictions. And we'd love to have you back at some point. And as I said, maybe talk to one or two of your surgeons or nurses and, and share some experiences from their perspective as well. Would be fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks buddy. Thanks, Take care and stay safe. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.